testing one, two. Turn to the book of Mark. I'll be reading chapter 12, verses 29 to 31. Mark 12, 29 to 31. Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Heavenly Father, help us see, understand, say from the depths of our spiritual being, aha, to why there are no greater commands than these two. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's uh, follow the line of thought where we've been in this series on redemptive history. Over the last few weeks, we have seen and brought up terms like need love, benevolent love. We have seen that God's need love, that is the love that one looks to an object to find their happiness, their joy, their contentment, However you want to put that, God has eternally had His need love met in Himself as He has loved Himself infinitely and omnipotently and satisfactorily in the face of His Son. And then we saw God toward creation, us creatures, doesn't love us with need love. He loves us with benevolent love. That is, He did not create the world in order to get something He did not already have. He created in order to overflow with the fullness of the joy that He is and already has. And we saw last week, okay, that being true, and God creates us in His image, what is the proper disposition or response or activity to go on within us human beings, creatures, to that God? And the answer is, we go to Him to get our need love met. We do not go to Him to love Him benevolently. He doesn't need anything. And now this week we come to the second thing. But we human beings are to love others horizontally down here, other creatures, not with need love but with benevolent love. Put it this way. Remember, we saw, we asked a question. After contemplating God, His Holy Trinity, why did He create? In other words, there's motive going on there. And we saw the answer was, again, to overflow with the joy that He has. Now here's the question. Okay, last week, yes, faith, the essence of faith, the essence to be saved, that disposition with our heart towards God is to go to get, 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 Happy in Him, in Him alone. Now the question is, when He says, now love your brother and sister, love your neighbor, that you love yourself. What does it mean? In other words, are we supposed to do it for no real motive going on in us? We just, well, I guess I'm a Christian. 
That's my duty. That's what He says to do, so just do it without ever contemplating motive. This morning my contention is to say there's motive, and the motive is important, and we should think about the motive. We should endeavor every day to have this motive, and that is this. Love other people for the motive of getting the satisfaction of the joy in it. Joy that we have in God overflowing in meeting the needs of the other person is the biblical and proper motive for true biblical love horizontally. Now, let me start this way. I'm going to turn to Romans 1. You may turn there or listen to the Apostle Paul. This is how I'm going to start. Here's the, here, here's the deal. As I look at Romans chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. So we're already arguing. Okay, ah, we, and that includes Paul, the Apostle, <laughs> found Christ. My knee love is met. <sighs> Why should I get up out of bed? Why should I love anyone else? In other words, here's the question. What is to impel us? There is something that impels, moves, motivates us. Listen to Paul, Romans 1, verses 14 and 15. He says, I, Paul, am under obligation. It means debt. I have a debt. I have an obligation to meet both and this is horizontal now, to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager. Here's Because I'm under obligation, therefore I, Paul, am eager to preach the Gospel to you also who are in Rome. Here's the question. How did Paul become indebted to these people, other human beings? Wise, foolish, Greeks, barbarians. Why is he owe them a debt to preach? Because there is something about Paul's vertical love towards God that is getting his knee love met. There's something about that experience, an ongoing experience, that has a must an indebtedness, an obligation to go and tell others. Love them that way. Now, think about obligation or think about debt. There's two different ways you can understand it. There is the debt that we incur when we borrow money, for instance, off a credit card or a person. We know those bills that come every month, if you have them, and there's interest charged, you're in debt. Is it joyful? And not normally. You can't wait to get rid of this burden. Is that what Paul's saying? I have a burden, I have an obligation, I have a debt to preach. Like I'm a Christian, you saved me. Now I've got to go love others, I guess. There's another kind of debt. There's another kind of obligation. It's the obligation, say that you are with a few other people starving and dying of thirst walking through the Sahara Desert. 
Your tongues are swelling. You just know you're not going to make it. There's nothing in sight. And one morning before the others woke up off the sand, you walked over the little sand dune hill. And as you got to the top of that, you saw a stream of water. And you ran down to it. And you fell in it. And you drank. And you drank. And you drank. And you drank. And then you walked back up to your buddies. Would you just say, okay, let's keep walking now? You would feel an obligation to tell them what you've found. That is what Paul is talking about. Let me show you another illustration, a biblical illustration of this in 2 Kings chapter 7, verses 3-9. to Here are these four lepers. And they can't go into the city, the city of Samaria. These Israelites in the city of Samaria have been besieged by the Syrians. The Syrians have locked them in their city, in their walls. They can't come out. There's no more food and animals and plants and vegetables coming in. They cut off their water supply. It got so bad up to this point that cannibalism was starting. And the lepers said, we're dying. We're going to die. They're going to die. We're here. If we go into the city, they're going to kill us because we're lepers. We can't do that. Let's go over to the camp of our enemy, the Syrians. And if they kill us, they kill us. We're going to die anyway. But maybe somehow they might feed us. And so I pick up with verse 3 of 2 Kings chapter 7. It says, Now there were four men who were lepers at the entrance of the gate. And they said to one another, Why are we sitting here until we die? If we say, Let us enter the city, the famine is in the city, and we shall die there. And if we just sit here, we shall die also. So now, come, let us go over to the camp of the Syrians. If they spare our lives, we shall live. And if they kill us, we shall but die. So they arose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. But when they came to the edge of the camp of the Syrians, behold, there was no one there. For the Lord had made the army of the Syrians hear the sound of chariots and of horses and the sound of a great army, so that they, the enemy, said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Egypt to come against us. So they fled in the twilight and abandoned their tents, their horses and their donkeys, leaving the camp as it was with food and water and everything else, and fled for their lives. And when the lepers came to the edge of the camp, they went into a tent and ate and drank. And they carried off silver and gold and clothing and went and hid them. Then they came back and they entered another tent and carried off things from it and went and hid them. Then they said to one another, We are not doing what is right. This day is a day of good news. If we are silent and wait until the morning light, punishment will overtake us. Now therefore come, let us go 
until the king's household so that all the other Israelites can come and eat and feast. When Paul says, I am indebted by the gospel, I am obligated to love others with it, it is this kind of debt that he's talking about. There's a positive side and there's a negative side. The positive side is Paul has this water of life. He has this message that God in His Son has come and purchased eternal forgiveness so that everything in your life as he would tell the Greeks and the barbarians, the wise, everything that has happened to you or will happen to you, he, in Christ, will work it out for your eternal good. He has that for himself, and he's obligated to share that with others. And then there's a negative side. Just as the lepers, there's a negative side. If they were to just hoard up all the gold and the silver and all the water and the food to sustain their life and not share it, overflow with it, punishment, they said, would overcome us. It's much like what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 16, when he said, For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. I have nothing to boast about by finding the camp of the Syrians empty and eating. That gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not love others. Excuse me, but not really. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Because there is something about the experience of true joy vertically in God that must share itself outwardly. Because it loves the experience of the activity, of the joy that it gets vertically. Flowing through it and watching the happiness as others drink of your loving deeds. That's why Paul is just chomping at the bit in Romans chapter 1 to say to the Romans, I can't wait to get there. Remember, he has not met them. He didn't plant this church. And he's talking to people who are already even Christians. He says, I want to preach to you. I want to overflow to you this gospel. Let's hear the whole context. I'm going to go back to verse 8 of chapter 1 that leads up to where he said, I'm indebted. Verse 8, First Romans I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. Because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of His Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. Because I long to see you. Why? I may impart to you, I may give to you, I may love you, I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers, 
that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. And so, I am eager to preach the Gospel to you also who are in Rome. Paul made it clear. I'm itching. There's something motivating me, Paul, to get there. And that's called joy. There is a happiness, a satisfaction in outflowing to others that Paul's talking about. So much so that I have no problem biblically making this statement. Love. Biblical love. Horizontal love that we're commanded to do. Loving other people is more than mere deeds. You can't just look at actions feeding that person who's hungry, helping that person with a car, or preaching the Gospel. You can't say, that's love, because look at the act. It's not less than deeds, but it is more. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 13 verse 3 is a jarring sentence. Paul says, If I give away all I have, and if I deliver my body to be burned, sacrifice my life, but have not love, I gain nothing. That's stunning because Jesus said, greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. And right here, Paul says, you could feed the poor, give away your stuff, give away your life, and it not necessarily be love. Because in this text, He says something about love. Love, true love for others, Christian love has its eyeball, has its goal on gaining something. It's after something in the act. He says right there, because if I do all that stuff, but I don't have love, then I gain nothing. Which implies, if you have real love that he's talking about, there is gain to be had. If there's not gain to be had in real love, then Paul is a really bad teacher. And the gain he is talking about in this love is joy. He's going to go down and say a few verses later, love rejoices. In the truth. Or in other words, what does that mean? It means it gets joy from truth. Now gain. I know, that's dangerous. Because, what are you saying, Joe? There's a wrong kind of a gain when you're approaching other human beings on a horizontal level. 
That's the gain when you do something, but you're doing it really as a means for them ultimately to meet your need. That's not love. That's manipulation. Remember the, the illustration a few weeks ago of the Twilight Zone episode? Those extraterrestrials from another planet that came down here with all the wisdom and knowledge and helped us really get our earth straightened out. No more wars. We were able to feed everybody on planet earth and everyone's getting fed real well. And then they'd take us up into the spaceship. Why? Because they were starving and they were going to eat us human beings. They're coming down and helping us out in how to plant and farm better and not have war anymore. Had nothing to do with real love. It was meeting a, as a means to their end to devour us. True biblical love, the gain in biblical love, the gain of joy in God in biblical love overflowing means I experience the joy I have in God and I'm really happy to meet your need because He floated through me and I, my joy is in your joy. The joy you have because I helped you. That's it. The joy you have because in me, Paul, going and preaching the Gospel, and I was able to impart that gift to you, you received it. Wow, that makes me happy. That's what he's after. Because that is an extension of the joy he already has in God. So, why, why is it? Who cares about motive? Just do it. Because you won't last if you don't think about motive. It is this motivation, for instance, in Paul's life, this desiring to experience the joy he has in God flowing actively through him to others that caused Paul to go through brutal things down here on earth for the experience of the true joy in loving others. For instance, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Listen to this litany of his experience. Paul says, with far greater labors, far more imprisonments he's been through, for the sake of love, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, dangers from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brethren, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Why, Paul? Because the stream in the Sahara Desert was infinitely valuable. Why, Paul? Because the Gospel, the good news that brought these things upon me is infinitely more valuable than anything this temporal world can dish out. 
All last year, we went through the book of Philippians. We saw in the first chapter, Paul argued that even my imprisonment here in Rome, God is using for the overflow, extension of the Gospel being preached. And Paul's main point in those first two chapters of Philippians was to say, joy is the outcome and the goal. I rejoice in it. Paul's conception of horizontal love towards others is that it is authentic only and only when it is the extension of the vertical joy he has in God. Wouldn't it be kind of strange if Paul who said, whatsoever is not of faith is sin, could talk about us Christians loving other Christians or other non-Christians, all the people in the world, loving others in a sense that does not involve God in that activity. Because faith is vertical. Faith has something to do with what's going on with you and God. And whatever you do, eat or drink or feed the poor or preach, whatever you do, not from a heart flowing out of a heart of faith, it's sin. It would be very odd for him, you can, for Paul to go ahead and let's talk about horizontal love and not necessarily connected to what's going on with your heart with God. Weird. Now, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Because in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul very deliberately and clearly is arguing and saying that benevolent love of us people to other people is, by its definition, the overflow of joy in God, which is gladly, happily, as an end, meeting the need of the other person. Your joy is in the joy that you get to see the joy of their need in them getting met. Listen to what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 8. I say this to you, Corinthians, not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness, that's activity of others, that your love also is genuine love, real. Now, I know you think, if you haven't read this text, what are you talking about? What Paul did before that, saying, why I laid out this example of these other Christians called the Macedonians, what is he doing? He's been raising money for a few years through all the churches to get this collection and because he's eventually going to go to Jerusalem with others. And the Jerusalem believers, the Jewish believers in Jerusalem and Judea have been struck hard with famine, with poverty. And they want to just bring the millions of dollars in our lingo to them. And so he's raising money. This is an act of love. Begin! Help them! And he's going to come to Corinth. And he's preparing them for this also. But he's saying, I want this to be an act of genuine love for you. And the way he goes about doing it 
is by using the Macedonian Christians. So I go back to verse 1 of chapter 8. Listen to how he argues. 2 Corinthians 8.1 We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God. Ooh, it's God's grace doing this. The grace of God that has been given among the churches of the Macedonians. What do you mean, Paul? For in a severe test of affliction, they got their own problems. Their abundance of joy. Hear it again. Their abundance of joy and their extreme lack of money, poverty, have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own free will. Hear the next word. Begging us. Paul, we don't have much, but we got a lot because we're going to dig deep. Please, let us give. And he said, where'd that come from? It came from an abundance of joy inside of them. Begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we had expected, but they gave themselves, don't miss it. Corinthians, don't miss what I'm going to say, Paul's. They gave themselves, where's this joy going to come from? Where's this genuine love going to come from? They gave themselves first to the Lord, vertically. And then, by the will of God, to us. And that's why he goes on to say in verse 8, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of that example of others that your love also is genuine. This is genuine love. Whereas we saw in 1 Corinthians 13.3, you can give a lot of money for the saints in Jerusalem and it not be an act of love at all. Because your gain isn't the experience, the doubling of the joy that you already have in God, overflowing and meeting the needs of others. It's coming from some other motive. That's why, think about motive, and it's your motive joy, and is it as an overflow of joy in God, meeting that need as an end. When you think about that positively, that's the safeguard about all the negative motives of why we might act or do. Because love is more than mere acts. That's what he says. Motive is everything. They begged us to give. Now, as I open up this little book again of C.S. Lewis, I quoted from it last week. I won't do that again where I've quoted. Remember, C.S. Lewis was arguing this idea about love, this idea about dealing with others, this idea about self-denial, as if, okay, can deny yourself, that's Christianity, do my duty in love, he said, is hogwash. If you just read the Bible carefully, every time you're commanded to do, do, act, overflow, love, it is always connected with 
promises that appeal to your deeper joy and deeper happiness. He says, Jesus thinks our motive for joy is not too strong, much too weak. We're like children content on making mud pies in a slum because we cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the ocean. And so, Lewis goes on because he knows people are going to say, look, if you say the motivation for giving to the Jerusalem saints is your joy, so much that you're just begging and itching to do it because you love the experience of the joy you get in doing it, that's mercenary. You know, a mercenary is someone who doesn't care who he fights for. You're going to pay me, I'll fight for your side. You pay me more, I'll fight for your side. I'm a, I'm a professional mercenary, a, a warrior. He knows people will come up with that. And so he responds, I quote, We must not be troubled by unbelievers when they say that this promise of reward makes the Christian life a mercenary affair. There are different kinds of rewards. There is the reward which has no natural connection with the things you do to earn it and is quite foreign to the desires that ought to accompany those things. Money is not the natural reward of love. That is why we call a man mercenary if he marries a woman for the sake of her money. But, Marriage is the proper reward of a real lover. And he is not mercenary for desiring it. A general who fights well in order to get more badges and prestige is mercenary. A general who fights, here's another motive, for the motive of victory, is not mercenary. Because victory being the proper reward of battle, just as marriage is the proper reward of love. The proper rewards are not simply tacked on to the activity for which they are given, but they are the activity itself in consummation. It is not wrong to fall in love with the hope and the prospect that she may be my wife. That's a goal. It's not mercenary. That's the essence of love. It's not, Lewis is arguing, wrong to give help, do loving deeds to another person for the motive of the gain of joy you get when they receive it and find their fill in your act. That's the motive that is natural, part of horizontal loving activity. Because we're promised by Christ everywhere the rewards that you would get. For such. That's why Paul says there is such a thing as true gain in acts of love. Now, just think about this very practically. You know the difference from being a recipient of deeds and acts when it's not real love. Just take the simple one. You're invited over for dinner. You eat in 
you enjoy it in grain. And there's something about the dynamic with those people that invited you over that you really, you just can't help but feel there are strings attached. They even drop hints the next week at church or somewhere else of when it's their turn to be invited over to your house. Caught in this circle of, you start to feel, wow, they did something to me, now I owe them one back. Or, we just say, we're those people. Sergio brought it up the other night and said it just so well. Here's how we check our heart. When you give that Christmas gift, or middle of October gift, or invite someone over for dinner, or say, I see that need here. I wanted to buy this piece of clothing for you. Whatever it is. And you start down the road to feel, hmm, feel a little irritated that they didn't kind of like subsequently do something for me. You know that your act was not an act of love. It was not an overflow of the joy merely to meet their end. And your, and your happiness and your joy and your gain that you got was in the happiness that they got by you meeting their need. There are strings attached. That's not genuine love. Turn with me to Matthew. Let's listen to, I find them stunning words. Verse 12 is one of the most familiar verses in all of the Holy Bible. But before we get to verse 12 of Matthew chapter 7, we're going to start with verse 7. Listen to the words of Jesus. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and and you will find, knock, and it will be open to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? Okay, let's just stop for a moment. That's last week. That's last week's sermon. That's vertical need love. Jesus is saying, Come! Get! Any time of the day or night, knock, seek, go for it! You're evil. Your kid asks for some bread. You don't give him a snake. God's not evil. Ask Him. He's happy to give to you what you need. Vertical love. The next verse. Verse 12. So. Don't miss that word so. It's more clear I think in English, if you just say the word the way it should be translated, therefore. That's what so means here. It's the Greek word un. It's an inferential particle. I know. Look at that. That means drawing inference. Because of the vertical love, therefore, this truth, whatever you wish that others would do to you, here's horizontal love. Do also to them for this is the law and the prophets. 
Jesus. See, if you have like I have little black words, okay, like little next little section, the golden rule, erase that from your mind. Grammatically, what Jesus is saying, these are connected. Ask, ask, come to Him. Everything you need, you, you, you don't have the means, come, He'll give, He'll give, He'll give. And because of that truth, now go out into the world and think about it. Whatever you wish people would do for you, do to them. Okay, let's say it again. Let's just use the illustration I gave earlier. Ask, knock, knock. I mean, go over the side of that hill and drink from the stream. Okay. And therefore, whatever you wish people would do for you, do to them. Question, Jesus says. If you were asleep in the sand and it was one of the other guys that went and found that stream, would you wish that He came and told you about it? And maybe even brought some of the water with Him? If so, go and do that to other people. Jesus is saying, if you understand God to be the supreme need meter, then as you go with sandwiches in your hand, the deed that they need for you to pull them out of quicksand, and you're also going to tell them that there's one much greater than you who can meet every need, knock, seek, ask. That's... Biblical, genuine, horizontal love. Now, if you're a thinking person, which you are, you should think critic. Wait a minute, what are you saying? Joe, there are thousands upon thousands of people, and we even call it this. They have benevolent funds. Uh, they're looking to put more millions of dollars into charities and fight disease. There are people that do good deeds that do not proclaim or confess Christ as their Savior. Are you saying that those acts are not love? Yes. I'm saying they're not this love, this biblical, genuine love here. I'm saying that ultimately, those motivations are somehow and in some way, is mysterious sometimes and very clear other times, trying to fill up a need love in them. Whether that is for out of guilt, I've got to get rid of that, I, I, gotta, I, I, need, I need to get rid of that, or whether it's out of the praise of man, I need to be praised, I need people to know this too. I don't know what they are. But if it's not from an overflow of joy found in God through Christ Jesus, it's not the love Jesus is talking about, or the love that Paul is talking about. Remember Paul, he goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 13, love has the absence of what? Boasting. It does not boast. There's no arrogance, there's no pride in your act. If 
it's genuine love. So let's then backtrack again and put this all together. We saw vertically that the only non-sinful approach to God is to go to Him to get, not to give. You have nothing to give. To get, I'm hungry. I need to knock. I need to seek. I need to get Hebrews 11, 6. He who believes in God has genuine faith must believe that He exists and that you reward those who seek you. I seek you with this motive. I want reward. And the reward is you. In other words, the only way to glorify the all-sufficiency of the eternal God is to go to Him because in His presence is fullness of joy. And at His right hand, pleasures forevermore. Now, horizontally, we don't abandon the pursuit of joy in loving others. But we pursue the experience of joy that we have to be expanded in us as His gifts and joy flow through us overflowing to others. Jonathan Edwards, in thinking about this, said it this way, 250 years ago. In some sense, the most benevolent, generous person in the world, you know, giving to others, right? Most generous, most benevolent person in the world, in some sense, seeks his own happiness in doing good to others because he places his happiness in their good. His mind is so enlarged as to take them, as it were, into himself and thus when they are happy, person you're loving, are happy, he, the giver, feels it. He partakes with them and is happy in their happiness. And so, love is the overflow. It's the overflow and it is the expansion of our joy in God, allowing us here and there to happily, happily meet the needs of others. That, oh, why that's so much? Think about it. You're in a hospital, you got a bad doctor report. You're, you're hurt. You want me to show up and say, oh, I'm sorry that you had to come here and take time out of a day. And say, oh, well, it's my job. It's my duty to do that. So, uh, would you feel more loved by that or more loved if I can get to the place prayerfully to say in my heart, I would rather be no other place in the world than right here with you right now. It is great joy for me to be sitting here holding your hand and talking to you right now. Which, which scenario causes you to feel actually more love from me or that person? The one who is bringing their play, heart to a place with God that even if they didn't start out that way, God help me be gladly meeting their need today. That's where genuine 
true love lay. And don't miss it. This love is costly in this world. We are in, and we're going to go through this series in redemptive history. We are in this period called the kingdom of God has come, but it's not yet, and there's a tension. The resurrection hasn't come yet. There's still pain, there's earthquakes, there's tsunamis, there's cancer. There's, I get tired every day and have to go to sleep. There are inconvenient, there's all this stuff still, and we're in this battle and in this struggle and therefore the pursuit of us to love as we're commanded by Christ to love others as we love ourselves is a battle and it can be costly. Jesus said it this way, whoever loves his life in one sense loses it. But whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And just think about that. See, Jesus, He could hardly ever, ever speak without motivating you. He motivated, throw away your life in the sense of what the world says, live for it, throw it away. Why? Because you want real eternal life, don't you? And so, I give a few biblical examples. First, Hebrews chapter 10. The Hebrew writer throughout this book has been emphasizing this because these Christians' vertical love has been dying and thus their horizontal love has been diminished. Throughout this book, the Hebrew writer, by the Spirit of God, is trying to motivate them to find their joy and happiness in the Gospel of Jesus Christ alone and thus to engender the overflow of love did I say, I said chapter 11, start with verse, excuse, chapter 10, verse 32. But Christian, Jewish Christians here, recall the former days when after you were enlightened with the gospel, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. It can bring this stuff. And sometimes being partners with those who were so treated. For you had love. Here's another word for it. You had compassion on other fellow believers in prison. And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your vertical confidence in the promises of Christ, which have great reward. He said, do you remember back then? You denied this worldly stuff, some of you, your homes, your property, your stuff, because you knew that if you went, probably the situation and visited the fellow believers who were locked up, they may say, oh, you're one of those, and come and take your stuff. And you said, so what? Because there was a motivation of reward in Christ that overcame all those earthly fears that allowed you to have compassion on your fellow believers. You denied it in one sense in order to gain vertically the promises of Christ 
which motivated true love in the face of danger. Or take Moses. Turn to the next chapter. Chapter 11, starting with verse 24. By faith, that's vertical. So going on with Moses. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God. Why would you choose that? Than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He answers, Moses considered the reproach of belonging to Christ to be greater wealth than all the treasures of Egypt. Because, here's his motivation. What was your motivation, Moses, to do what God told you to do and have to lead these rebellious people, have to love God's people? What motivated you? He was looking to the reward. So he left. And he obeyed. One more. Jesus Himself is a pretty good example. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who... Now, I don't know, if you've got an argument that tells me where is a greater act of human love towards other people as Jesus and His humanity than the cross? Let me know. But He says, for who, this Jesus, for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That text said... Jesus, how did you get through that? My motivation was the joy set before me that this act of love would produce. Conclusion. Love seeks to experience more of the joy that it already has in God. Not merely as, well, if you love, you're probably going to be more joyful, but you ought not be motivated by that joy. The Bible says very differently. Love says, I want to experience more true joy in God in my act of love. In other words, it loves the power of grace. Those who have been affected, all of us Christians who have been born again by the grace of God, His miracle of saying, here's my love for myself, put in you. And that's why when we hear the Gospel that one day and keep hearing it, ooh, it sounds so good. That's not you. That's the grace of the presence of the person of the Holy Spirit of God who is the personification of God's love for God. That's why we love Him. And there's something about that experience that is worse than the most addicting narcotic. It says, I love that grace. And I want to experience and feel more of that grace. I love the grace of God grabbing hold of people and meeting their needs. But I'm not satisfied merely to stand by. I like to be experiencing that happening more through me. So love, it's not seeking 
an end that it doesn't have. It's not seeking a joy. I want joy. I don't have it. I need it. That's need love. That would be sinful to do, to use people that way. It is seeking the doubling of the joy it already has in God flowing through you because to experience it more in activity flowing through us is all the more satisfying. Let's pray. Father, help us. Help us not be satisfied making mud pies in a slum. Help us to open our eyes to the biblical promises of a holiday at the sea. Not only in our prayer life, but from our prayer life in our horizontal life. Help us see from and in the midst of the continual sin that settles for mud pies. Grow us. Sanctify us. Open our eyes to needs. Open our eyes to the need above all needs for people's salvation in Christ. Miraculously work deeper in every one of us these truths. Father, allow us to experience the grace of knowing our sinful, utterly self-centered activity, refusing to meet the need of others, as the grace to say, Ooh, that means I'm not being satisfied enough in You to even have the overflow wanting to go through me. And draw us once again back to You. In Jesus' name. Christ alone. He is my life. My-